Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Foreign Witness from our 2018 programme. The life of the foreign correspondent is a fascinating one, forever on the move, often at the coalface of the news cycle, and witnessing the unfolding of history. Freelancer and Southeast Asian specialist Francis Wade and former China correspondent Madeleine O'Day talk with journalist and former foreign correspondent Mike McRoberts. We hope you enjoy this. Um, so, Francis, yeah, let's just explain that. Welcome home. Uh, your mum's a Kiwi. She is a Kiwi. Um, yeah, a lapsed Kiwi. <laughs> <laughs> We're all lapsed Kiwis. <laughs> yeah, she's been in the UK since the mid-70s, but I was born here in Auckland, um, and this is, yeah, nice to be back and reconnecting um, with roots that, yeah, I kind of, I feel like I've lost, but... I'm sure they're still there somehow, somewhere. Fantastic. And Madeline, um, you've been in China for 30 years, as we're about to, to talk about, but uh, back in, in Australia now? Yes, back in Sydney, living now, so yeah. And how's that going? Um, it's, it's really strange coming back to your own country after a long, long time away. When I moved back there, it was to, it was to write the book, um, and I'd been living in China then for about nine years, and it was really a culture shock coming back to Sydney and uh, I actually have to say I was a bit intolerant at first um, because when you've lived in a country like China with you know so many problems and so you know kind of like an immense immense sort of story going on there you come back to Australia and you and at first you feel a bit kind of irritated that people are not really in tune with with that um, story and and perhaps are, are too complacent about how good the life is in Australia relative to other parts of the world but but pretty quickly I settled back into realizing what a great country it is and I'm really happy to be living back there now but I do travel to China really regularly every few months so so that's good fantastic Francis um, well let's start with with your book and and I guess one of the things when we're talking about uh, foreign correspondence there are probably two types of foreign correspondents if you like there's um, is that the yourself and and Madeline who have spent a long time in the in the region that they're reporting on you build contacts, um, you, you, you create a wealth of, uh, of knowledge. Uh, then there's the other, like myself, um, often called parachute journalists. Uh, <laughs> we, we do parachute into a situation, report on it for a couple of weeks, and then skip off back to home. Um, but in, in order to get the sort of depth of understanding of, uh, of the Rohingya crisis and, and, uh, and also what has been happening in Myanmar, I mean, I guess that was the only way for you to do that, to, to spend that length of time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an immensely complicated situation. Um, and, you know, only really, even for journalists, I'd begun working on Myanmar in early 2009 um, for an exiled Burmese media group based in northern Thailand. Um, and for the first sort of three years or so of reporting on the country, I think I must have done, you know, a handful of stories on the Rohingya. They were very much this peripheral issue. You know, the great story was the democracy movement, mm. the movement agitating against military rule, um, and the conflicts between ethnic minorities, recognized ethnic minorities, and the military in the north and the east of the country. And it was only really in 2012 when the first wave of violence between Buddhists and Muslims happened, communal violence um, between Rakhine Buddhists and Rohingya Muslims in the west of the country. That's only really when, you know, I think people started to notice this minority in the west of the country called the Rohingya. Um, 
and start to understand that there was this community that had been entirely left out of the narrative of a democratizing Myanmar, of um, a country that should be sort of, you know, guaranteeing equal rights for all communities. They were always peripheral to that narrative. They were almost a kind of invisible community. And suddenly this wave of violence erupts um, and, you know, 150,000 Rohingya are herded into these internment camps. Um, and it was that that really, I guess their absence really interested me. Why hadn't they been included in the broader pro-democracy movement? Why was it that suddenly colleagues of mine who were espousing otherwise very sort of democratic, progressive ideals turned on this community, mm. saw them as you know a malevolent Islamist force in the country? Um, and that's what really fascinated me, I think, how you know these sort of different interpretations of democracy, um, how my assumptions about what people view to be democracy are very different to what they, you know, what other communities in other contexts um, believe them to be. Yeah, because when we would all followed it and, and had seen this fight for democracy and it was championed all around the world, wasn't it? Then all of a sudden yeah. you're there in the middle of it all and you're thinking, hang on a second, <laughs> this isn't right. It's democracy for some and not for others. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Very selective democracy. How do you report that? Um, well, I mean, you step back, you think about it, you, uh, you try to understand that there are sort of very complex fault lines in Myanmar society. Um, any society that's fissured along ethnic religious lines that's come out of military rule, 50 years of military rule, um, it's not an easy story to tell. It's not black and white. You know, Myanmar had always been seen as a kind of a story of a nefarious military junta oppressing a sort of virtuous Buddhist society. Um, then you see, you know, factions within that sort of supposedly virtuous Buddhist um, society attacking or at least espousing hateful views towards a vulnerable minority. And you realize that it isn't as black and white um, and you shouldn't have made those assumptions about the country in the first place. Mm. Um, and it's the same with our sort of treatment of Aung San Suu Kyi. You know, we've assumed certain things about <coughs> her because of the views she's um, put forward. But now we know those to have been grossly wrong. Um, and we have to think of her as a human being rather than this sort of saintly figure. Yeah, and that's difficult because a lot of people don't want to hear that story, do exactly, they? And, yeah, uh, exactly, yeah. I remember in, in 2012, I had the opportunity to interview Aung San Suu Kyi and, uh, yeah, being quite disappointed. I asked her exactly that about the Rohingya crisis and she had no answer for it and yeah. no plans to answer it anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, was it difficult? writing that story? Was it difficult putting that story out there? Yeah, very much. Um, you know, as, as a foreigner working on this, and particularly British, a British journalist, given the legacy of colonial rule in the country, um, you're, you know, I was, when I started writing on this in 2012, when that first wave of violence struck, um, and I think when I was sort of airing criticism of this, you know, ultra-nationalist um, kind of movement within the country that I thought had sort of, you know, that had lain hidden for so long, or at least lain dormant, um, 
I was accused of being, you know, a neo-colonialist, um, a terrorist sympathizer, and so on, because, you know, you're an outsider and you don't really understand the country. And it's true that, you know, I don't, you know, even nine years working on Myanmar, I still don't really understand it. Um, the more you know, the more complicated it gets. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you have to be very sensitive to the fact that, you know, you can't just treat perpetrators of violence as, you know, inherently evil or as, you know, uh, sort of led by kind of primitive um, desires to see communities kicked out of the country or killed. There are real fears, there are real anxieties driving this. And unless you engage with those fears and anxieties, then you don't really understand the story and you don't do it justice. So you have to understand these nuances that are present in the conflict and you have to report them accurately and sensitively, even if it means you're, you know, it's, you have to understand what's happening. Mm. You can't just accuse one side of being malevolent and the other side of being, you know, victims. Um, it's not as black and white as that. Absolutely, and we'll, I, I want to pick up on that in, in a moment, but I saw, um, Madeline, you nodding with that um, mm. suggestion that the more you know, <laughs> the, more you, the more you know, the less you understand. Yeah. 30 yeah. years in China, uh, that's <laughs> incredible. That's a, that's a life's journey right there, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and it was certainly not my intention when I first went to China that it would become this sort of obsession of my life. But, but yeah, no, we used to joke about that. You know, if you've been in China for a week, you can write a book, you know. <laughs> after a month, you can maybe write an article, and after a year, you know, really can't write anything at all. <laughs> and um, actually, I saw something very amusing on my Twitter feed. I obviously follow a lot of my colleagues, you know, Chinese um, journalists, and they put up this thing called Bing Chinese Expert Bingo Card, because it's all these people who go to China and they write these expert pieces for the Wall Street Journal about, about China. And, and the bingo card had all the kinds of things people say about China, the things you have to understand. You tick them all off and you can write your expert piece. Um, and it's, you know, it is quite funny that people think they can understand such a vast um, place um, in such a short time. But, um, yeah, I think, I think Journalism, you know, you have to be a kind of um, a humble person to be a journalist, or you should have some humility um, and not assume you can just understand everything instantly. Um, but at the same time, you have to have some confidence in your own perceptions as well um, and not be, not be afraid to, to come down on some, in some way about having an opinion about what you're seeing as well. So it's an interesting, an interesting balance you have to, um, have to strike as a journalist, I think. And it was interesting when you were talking before about being a parachute journalist versus the kind of embedded sort of journalist, because I've done both. And um, I think there's something to be said from both, for both of those things. I think that, you know, if you're the right sort of parachute journalist, you can get, you can get really um, interesting stories out about a country that sometimes the person who's living there doesn't see. There's something about fresh eyes, which mm. is really, really great. And um, I certainly hold on yeah. to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I've also got you know, friends who are, um, are full-time war correspondence and, uh, you know, it changes you as a person as well, you know, oh, I yeah, think, yeah. Um, yeah. and I'm not willing to, <laughs> to go down that track just yet, but, uh, no. yeah, but I, I do think, it also relates to your audience as well, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I'm a Kiwi, I'm a New Zealander, I live in New Zealand. When I go to these places, I'm looking at it through New Zealanders' eyes because it's, that's my audience, it's who yeah. I'm, you know, engaging with. Yeah. But, um, you know, 30 years, and, and we're, we're joking before, or sort of joking before about, you. The, the luck you sometimes get uh, in a situation, and you were you arrived in, in Beijing in 1986? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And, and 
unlike the other journalists, you weren't corralled into a very um, sort of protected and, and scrutinised area. You, you got to stay somewhere else. And yeah. That it's, opened so many doors for you. Yeah, no, I was extremely lucky. I, um, when I arrived there, I was working for the Financial Review, and at that stage, the Financial Review didn't have its own kind of official office um, in the centre of town. In theory, I was going to share the office with um, an office that had the Financial Times already, the Guardian, the Age, the Sydney Morning Herald. And when I arrived, they just kind of like, the other guys just said, no, nah, sorry, no space for you. Um, and luckily for various connections, I had a kind of a foothold at this thing called the Friendship Hotel, which was way out in the west of the city, right next to the universities, and was where the Chinese at the time were putting all the, what they called foreign experts, and these were like foreign teachers and technical experts and so on, who were working really closely with um, Chinese colleagues um, in China. And the people at the Friendship Hotel, unlike at this diplomatic compound in town where most of the journalists were, the people at the Friendship Hotel were just kind of lazy and not very interested in policing the activities of um, the foreigners who lived there. Um, and even kind of in physical sense, it was quite an open place. Um, instead of having like just a, a small entryway into the compound, there was this kind of vast sort of entranceway. You could just wander in and, and the guard who was in his little guard house wouldn't bother to come out and check on you or who you were talking to or who you were bringing in. And so very quickly this thing, the Friendship Hotel, became a centre where Chinese people and uh, foreigners could get together and um, have you know, real relationships and real conversations, uh, relatively un, um, unharassed or unsurveilled by um, you know, the Chinese authorities. And so I was very lucky to live there. And I was saying to Mike before, I ran in today to um, uh, Chinese writer Shui Yiwei, who's here for the festival, and, and he was talking about when he first came to Beijing as a student in the 80s, and he said, the most exciting place in the 80s was the Friendship Hotel. And I said, yes, yes, you know, and I thought, here's another, we probably met at a party, like we couldn't remember, but, but it really was an incredible centre. And because it was close to the universities, um, as the universities became the place where um, so many of the, the, the ideas were being developed in the 1980s leading up to the Tiananmen Square demonstrations, there were um, salons where students were discussing all sorts of um, ideas and academics also, um, the Friendship Hotel would also become a place where they would come and discuss those ideas with, with foreigners. So it really was the most remarkable luck, that, but really because my colleagues didn't want to shift over and give me a desk in town, I ended up <laughs> you know, in this fantastic environment. So yeah, luck plays a big part in, in journalism for sure. And as someone going into that situation where your job is to report on what's going on, you know, the opportunity to meet people to, to, to gain context, to, um, to get an understanding of, of the community you're trying to reflect and, and report on is, is massive, isn't it? I mean, because you, you, don't, you don't get that standing in the hotel of the foyer of the Marriott <laughs> or <laughs> no. those sorts of places. I'm lucky because TV3, our budget, you know, um, meant that we never stayed at the big hotel. So, Excellent. you know, uh, <laughs> we were normally in someone's room or a you know, bed sit somewhere, but um, yeah. it would put you into the community. And, yeah. and so you got yeah. a real understanding of what was happening. Yeah, yeah, no, it was uh, mm. remarkable. The other thing about the 1980s when I first arrived there was that even though in, in many ways, you know, a much more controlled society than today, there was a kind of incredible openness as well. Um, it was really in the early days of the opening up of China, the revolt, you know, the economic reforms and so on. And so there was a kind of appetite for ideas and a real openness to the kind of ideas that were coming in from the West, which were so new. And, and everything, not just economic ideas or political ideas, but you know, but literary ideas, artistic ideas, and you'd have these conversations, incredibly vivid, wonderful conversations late into the night about things that 
you know, that you probably hadn't really been very excited about since you were a, um, a teenager. You know, you'd be having these fights about T.S. Eliot or, you know, Dali, <laughs> Warhol. You know, like, it's kind of mad stuff that you, as I say, you, as a teenager, you might have been really excited by, but by the time you're in your 20s, it's just part of, you know, Western civilization. But in China, these were new and vivid things. And people really wanted to discuss them. They wanted to discuss Freud, you know. They wanted to discuss Foucault. They wanted to discuss... So it was, um, yeah, an amazing, amazing time for, for open discussion. And I'm sure over that 30 years, that, that freedom, particularly the freedom to report, um, has ebbed and flowed. It seems to be ebbing very much uh, at the moment. Yeah. But what have you noticed about that? What's, what's been your uh, impression? It is, it is really quite um, depressing. If you, if you have this idea that things just get better and better in the world, I mean, China's a great example of how things actually go like this, you know. They ebb and flow, for sure. When I was there in the 80s, you know, we were very, as a, um, a group of foreign journalists, and, in fact, the Chinese journalists too, you know, very controlled and, and physically controlled in terms of where we could go. Like in the 80s, if you wanted to travel to a different town as a journalist, you had to get permission in advance and so on. Um, and that, over time, that became much, much more open. And by the time the 2000s, for example, came around, it was almost, you know, it was a pretty open situation for foreign journalists and Chinese journalists in, in Beijing, um, in China. And people could travel without permission and, and so on. Um, and there was a kind of transparency about uh, government. Government would report certain things and they'd, they'd allow certain information to be known and so on. So things seemed to be getting quite open. But over the last 10 years or so, from uh, I suppose approximately before the um, Beijing Olympics, from then on, it's got tighter and tighter and tighter. And actually, the situation for Chinese journalists now is just terrible. You know, for some years there were actually there was a really quite vibrant Chinese press that were were doing really interesting investigative pieces and 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 really you know um, you know quite sort of cutting edge kind of work. They're basically now being told that they're part of the propaganda ministry and they should just. Their role is to um, to reflect what the Communist Party tells them to say. You know, they're told that directly, and that's that's what they're doing. So the media, Chinese media, is very uh, repressed now, um, and it's just not a very exciting um, thing. But meanwhile, the foreign journalists, are, the level of harassment of foreign journalists is extreme now. Mm. And even though in theory they're allowed to go and report on the streets and so on, but they're they're constantly being prevented from from going about their um, about their business, and uh, it's really quite difficult and if you want to report on a situation like in Tibet for example or Xinjiang these are you know really fraught parts of the country it's almost impossible you know as soon as you arrive you're being followed the whole time and filmed everything you do and so on which is a pretty big uh, deterrent to doing proper proper journalism so yeah things are not not good at the moment for, for journalism in China yeah, I remember going there in, in 2008 in fact um, it was just after there'd been a massive cyclone that yeah. gone through uh, through Myanmar, and we'd been tr we'd been in Thailand trying to get into Myanmar, and um, had been turned back to the border, and then the, the massive earthquake happened in Sichuan yeah. province, and yeah. so I thought, well, let's go and cover that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we actually went over as tourists and flew into Shanghai, and then I got a domestic um, domestic flight to Chengdu, and. Mm. One of the great things about you know, being in a kind of militarised state is that they just assume because you're there you must have permission. So mm. you know, we were filming everything and there's only a handful <laughs> of foreign journalists there. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they even provided us lunch one day, which was you know, outstanding. <laughs> and, um, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty grim, though. It was one of the oh, you know, most horrible stories I think I've ever covered, uh, yeah. particularly with the schools that, um, that collapsed. But yeah, Actually, I, that was kind of a... 
that moment actually was a kind of high point in, in, um, in journalism in China, actually, because um, particularly in those first few days, like when you first arrived there, um, the local authorities were glad for any kind of help and any kind of coverage. And so, yeah, all the journalists who ran down, including all the Chinese journalists, they were doing really incredible reporting. Mm -hmm. um, and, and very frank, and particularly you just refer to the schools, one of the great scandals of the earthquake, you know, was it was a very, um, it was high on the Richter scale, it was an eight, I think an eight or whatever. And of course that was going to lead to massive loss of life. But what people noticed very quickly was that there was a disproportionate number of children killed in the earthquake. It turned out because it was the middle of the day, they were in school, and these schools, which were meant to have been built to you know, the highest uh, code of um, earthquake proofing, had not been because all the money that was meant to be paid building these schools had gone into the pockets of corrupt officials. And so these schools have just collapsed with no chance for the children to get out. And in those first few days, um, not just foreign journalists, but Chinese journalists were, were was covering that story in the most uh, wonderful way and dogged way, you know, really trying to investigate that. And it, it, I remember, like, I was in Beijing and I didn't go down there, but I remember watching and thinking, this is amazing. And there was also citizen journalists, you know, were doing things on the internet and so on. But very quickly, within about a week, it, you know, they started to crack down on that and, and the official narrative had to be imposed. And really I do see that as a kind of the starting point of, of what we have now, that they just, you know, they realised that if they let people just do what they wanted, you know, foreign journalists, their own journalists, um, citizen journalists, things would run out of control. There'd be, you know, critique they didn't want to hear. And so they started to control things and, uh, yeah, it hasn't really, it's kind of been on that sort of level since. Mm. Yeah, it was an interesting moment. Look, I guess in terms of, of being a, a parachute journalist, I could do that. I could buff my way in and, you know, and uh, go and cover that story. And, um, and yeah, look, I, I, you know, I was standing in front of one of those schools when the families were coming to, to identify their, their children, and it was just horrendous. Yeah, it really was. And I remember a father coming up to me afterwards and, and uh, through the interpreter said that um, only the good kids had been killed, and I, I couldn't understand what he, oh, was, yeah, what he yeah, was meaning. And yeah. And so what had happened was a seven-storey um, school building and uh, the teachers, had, when the earthquake started, the teachers had told the children to get under their desks mm -hmm. and the naughty ones ran out of the classroom. Yeah. And the building concertinaed and so the good ones, you know, were killed. And when Terrible. this was explained to me, it was just, you know, I had two children about that same age and, uh, yeah, it was, you know, I mean... It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is, it is heartbreaking. Yeah. And I, I think they may have been shot, the people who were... <laughs> responsible for building those schools? Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, there were these investigations announced, but, I, you know, like a number, it's, it's a 10-year anniversary this month, and uh, there's been a certain amount of investigation about, it seems like most of the people involved were kicked upstairs. They weren't actually um, really um, punished. Uh, and actually, some of the families who, who, you know, agitated for a full accounting are the ones who really have been punished. Some have been, um, had small, you know, short times in prison, you know, detention, um, and told to, you know, just, you know, you better shut. You know, mm. it's better shut mm. up. Other things. You know, it's it's really quite. Yeah, it's quite a terrible thing. Yeah. The lack of account accountability for some a tragedy like that. Where I was getting to with that was that you know I, I can go in and do that yeah. and, and get out again. But yeah. you know, when you're based there, when you're staying there, you've got um, you you can't do that. You've also got the responsibility of the, the safety of the people that you're dealing with, and and for yourself, Francis, you know getting over that mistrust, that, um, that general kind of feeling that, you know, you are different, you're, um, you're not one of us, and getting that, uh, that trust of the, the people to talk to you. So how do you go about that? How, how did it work? Yeah, I mean, having a good fixer interpreter is essential. 
Um, and they're really the, you know, it's almost, they're so important that I think every byline should include Fix's <laughs> name as well. I mean, they're just integral to the whole experience. Um, and a good fixer, so when I work in Western Myanmar, where it's very uh, sensitive, and particularly where you know there's a great deal of hostility towards foreign journalists at present, um, I work with a friend who I've known for quite a few years. He's ethnic Rakhine Buddhist. Um, and there was a period about, when would it have been, maybe three years ago, when I was looking for um, participants in the violence against Rohingya. So we had sort of communal violence from 2012 onwards. And these were, um, these involved, you know, buses being ferried into towns to attack Rohingya neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, there were machete attacks, there were arson attacks, villages were raised, um, buildings were destroyed, you know, women, children were killed. Um, and Again, going back to the sort of earlier point we were making, I just wanted to get that sort of deeper understanding of why people were doing what they were doing. Um, and I thought the only way to do that was to try and find some people who had participated in the violence, who had attacked, um, you know, uh, Rohingya civilians. And so my fixer and I would jump on his motorbike from the main town in Western Myanmar, Sitway, and drive along this road, and we knew that that road had served as a thoroughfare for buses carrying mobs um, from outside of Sitway town into town to attack Ranger neighborhoods. Um, and these buses had made sort of stops at various points along this road to collect more participants who had been organized by their village administrators and been driven into town. They'd be dropped off outside neighborhoods, they'd attack, and then they'd board the buses and go back to their villages. So we knew that these villages had been a kind of wellspring for mobs. Um, and our process was kind of, it was quite crass. We'd just go into the village, we'd try and find the village administrator, we'd speak to the village administrator to try and determine whether um, anyone had been, what was the word we used? Whether anyone in the village had been affected by the violence. And he might point to such and such a house over there and say, yes, the man from there was uh, affected by the violence. So then we knew that that person had probably gone into, you know, joined the buses and gone into town um, to attack. So we'd approach that house and we'd begin by, you know, discussing sort of broader, I guess, softer issues, um, you know, development in the village, um, economic woes, what the main tensions were in the village. And then we'll take it back to 2012 and say, you know, was this village affected by the violence in 2012? And they might say, no. And then we'd say, were you affected by the violence? And then slowly the story would come out and you'd sort of tease it out of them. And um, there were times when the interviewee became very, you know, animated, um, sometimes very hostile, very angry. Um, and my fix was very good at, you know, as a journalist, you kind of want to push it and push it and push it. <laughs> and that's often a bad idea. And you need to have someone who's, um, you know, able to sort of pull you back a bit mm. um, and diffuse the situation. And 
the fixer that I'm, you know, that I have in mind was very good at just sort of seeing when the temperature was rising too quickly and then would pull back. And I'd always have some secondary questions that were much more sort of banal. And then I'd go to them and then speak about these for sort of five, ten minutes and then try and sort of ease our way back into the conversation we're having. Um, and, yeah, it's just you can't overstate how important a good fixer, a good translator is. You can't just, you know, as a foreigner, bowl into these villages or into these sort of sensitive parts of wherever you're reporting on and expect to get a good story, expect not to be accosted by security or by civilians. Um, they serve as your guide. Um, they're absolutely essential to that. Um, yeah, I can't actually remember the question. <laughs> <laughs> just in terms of, of, of gaining their trust, but obviously, you know, you've, you've done it through the fixer, but I was just reminded of um, that famous uh, Newsweek journalist Ed Bear and his, uh, his memoir, which was entitled... Uh, has anyone been raped and do you speak English? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fixer is vital. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's what builds the richness of your stories, isn't it? It's those, um, it's the, the depth of the story, it's, the, it's the, the, the width of the people that you've canvassed to talk to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think that you know, comes through very strongly in, in your book, or both of your books. So, how does it work then when you leave them and, you know, and moving away from the book for a second, when you're, when you're writing a story, the, the kind of responsibility for the people that you've spoken to is something that I, I get asked a lot from um, journalism students, you know, um, and I've had situations myself where, you know, I've left a place and thought, mm, I hope those people will be okay and we've checked up on them. But when you are encouraging someone to speak out against the regime or... Or you know, or even, or even just to go on camera sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's you're putting them in a pretty perilous position. Yeah, I mean, I'd always make sure they were happy to be quoted, um, and then I'd ask them whether they were happy for me to use their name. If not, I'd use a pseudonym for them. Um, that was always the sort of first um, thing you check out before you start the interview. Um, but you don't know, you know, you don't know who's lurking in these villages. And in you know a state like China or like Myanmar, where the security apparatus is so vast and the the surveillance system so um, sophisticated, there is always the danger that you know what might seem to be just a neighbour passing by is going to be a spook. Mm -hmm. We'll then go and report that person to authorities, yeah. um, and that's you know that's it's difficult to know how to navigate that. I think you just have to, again, let your fixer guide you and let the interviewee guide you. Um, if they're okay with it, then you have to assume that it's gonna be okay. Um, but then there are other issues like, you know, there's a certain expectation, particularly when you go to a crisis zone. So I was in Bangladesh last September, um, about three or four weeks after the ethnic cleansing campaign started and you know, there were people just pouring across the border. Um, I think at that point, around fifteen to 20,000 people a day. Um, all of them severely traumatized. Um, and the place was just a mess. It was absolute carnage. And 
you go there and you're, you know, as a journalist, your job is to, you know, collect testimony and try and sort of convert that into something that draws attention to the situation and that does it justice. And you can't possibly do that. Um, you can't write the image of what's happening there. It's impossible. Um, but you start to realize also as a journalist that, you know, them giving testimony to you isn't a priority of them. They're coming from, you know, people were fleeing massacres, um, scorched earth campaign. Um, you know, I was interviewing people who had lost entire families sort of days before, um, who'd watched them be killed. They want, you know, they want aid for a start. They want comfort. They want dignity. Journalists don't offer any of that. We're quite extractive in a sense. Yeah. Um, and so you leave that, you know, you leave a situation like that knowing that or sort of questioning what you've given to the situation, you know, what you've given back. Um, and that's something that I find very difficult to grapple with, and it sort of often makes me wonder about my career path, whether I could have done something with more impact. Um, but then, you know, the world needs journalists as well, so, yeah, it's a complicated, complicated thing. Yeah, I think it's really complicated. That, that whole question of, um, you know, making sure that, that you don't, make things worse for people, that you don't leave people behind and, and expose is really, really important. And well, in China, I mean, yeah. you get arrested for subversion for the smallest thing. Yeah, exactly. And I, over the years, like, I, I've worked there as a, you know, as a, as a correspondent for a newspaper, um, and then I worked for television and so on and so on. And one of the things I found that is kind of a bit alarming is that you, you do tend to think, oh, well, you know, if the person is happy to be interviewed or happy to be quoted, then it's probably fine. But I found with China, particularly, I guess, in the early, in the early period that I was there, is that often they, they're not the best judge either. Mm. That, in fact, you have to have an excess of caution. That sometimes you're the kind of the person in the room who actually understands the danger. That people can be quite innocent in, in not realising how bad things can get. Um, I really, I mean, I'm you know, really proud of having worked uh, you know, as a political journalist and a uh, journalist covering the economy of China and so on for basically the best part of the 20, first 20 years that I was involved with China. That was the kind of story that I was covering. But when I went back to live there again in, um, uh, in the 2000s, I, I was absolutely determined not to do that kind of journalism anymore because of this issue of really of, of the relationships you have with people and the potential to do them harm. And that's, that was when I started to think, you know, I still want to write about China. How do I keep on telling the story of China, which I think is such an amazing story? And that's when I started writing about art. Mm. Because I realised by writing about art um, uh, that that was a way that I could, I could talk about all these issues that were going on in China. I could, um, you know, uh, talk to some amazing people and tell their stories. But it was within a kind of a space that was relatively safe because it was supposedly not politics, even though it's extremely, actually extremely political. Um, and that allowed me to be a different kind of journalist and to live in a way that I found um, morally a bit more comfortable. Because I always found it a little bit, little bit concerning about the way that you were never quite sure whether in pushing someone to tell you more of a story or to, to give you better, you know, better sort of, better copy that you might in fact be uh, causing them some, you know, some problems without even realising. Mm. I remember when I was working for the ABC as a producer, we did, you know, a lot, number of one, you know, fantastic stories in China. And, we did one that was really just about um, uh, this was about the massive um, transfer of people from the countries to the cities, the big urbanisation of China, and we were trying to find ways to tell the story. and And we we managed to identify a number of um, 
um, people from the countryside who were living in Beijing and were kind of living these sort of hard scrabble lives, but, but getting money together to send back to their villages. And we found this particular guy and we were gonna spend time with him and then go back to his village and so on. And he was doing this kind of recycling thing. He was going around picking up, you know, bottles and, and cardboard paper and so on, and then taking it to a big recycling centre and getting a small amount of money for that. Um, and we thought that was fantastic, you know, it's like, incredible he's doing this, and, and also that it was recycling. This was in the 90s, we thought this was very good. Um, but the police turned up, and they were absolutely sure that the angle we were doing on the story was that China was a dirty place. This guy was like a rubbish collector, rag picker, and what we must be doing was a story about, you know, China was dirty and, you know, a disgusting place, and that's what we were doing. And I can still remember trying to have this conversation with... We were taken to the police station, it became this big thing, and trying to convince them that that wasn't what we were doing, but what was going back in the back of my mind while we were having the conversation was not, oh, we may not be able to get the story, they might stop us from filming or, you know, whatever. It was this poor guy we've been filming with. You know, what was going to happen to him mm. um, if we couldn't convince them? And um, actually, it was quite funny because I was having, you know, I was the producer and I was having, I was the one that could speak Chinese, so I was having the conversation. And, and, but they kept talking about Italy. They kept saying, you know, we know what you Italians are like. And I'm saying, no, we're not Italians, we're Australians. And it just kept going on. And I thought, it's so surreal. Why can't... And I suddenly realised that what he was talking about was... You're probably all too young to remember, but Antonioni, the great Italian film director, he went to China um, at the end of the Cultural Revolution and did a documentary. And he was invited there by Madame Mao's wife. And it was meant to be... They thought he was a kind of left-wing guy, that he would celebrate wonderful China. But in fact, what he actually did was expose the, you know, how terrible it was at this time of the Cultural Revolution. And they had never forgotten. And so these police in their heads, you know, any, anyone who was you know, like looking to do a bad story about China must be somehow related to this Italian group. <laughs> but anyway, finally we convinced them and, and also finally convinced them to not find the guy and give him back his, you know, that he wasn't to blame. He was just being a nice man, helping us out. And, but, um, you know, experiences like that really made me think about, you know, what are we doing? You know, even when you're trying to do a relatively positive story, you can easily find yourself in a position where you're not just in trouble, but the people you're talking to are in trouble as well. So, mm. yeah, mm. I'm, I'm kind of quite glad that I've kind of moved into this different, different kind of journalism now in relation to China. Yeah. The other aspect um, I just want to touch on uh, quickly is, is technology as well, you know, and certainly for, for video, for... Um, for uh, television, you know, the internet now has changed things dramatically. Uh, you know, something that you did five years ago, ten years ago, will pop up. Um, there have been times I remember being in um, in Kabul uh, in must have been 2011, 2012, when we were leaving as a defence force. New Zealand was leaving as a defence force, and they'd left behind a whole lot of interpreters, inexplicably. Oh. Um, and so I'd gone over to Kabul, spent two weeks there, and interviewed them. Uh, promised not to show their, their faces uh, on the internet. We geo-blocked it when the story ran, but then someone here in New Zealand filmed the story as it went to air, and, um, and that put them under a, a lot of pressure. It also put us under a lot of pressure mm. too, and, and but luckily the, um, the government uh, changed their minds and these guys were invited to come and stay in the country. But you know, those sorts of things happen all the time. You know, and, yeah and to try and convince someone to, to speak on camera now when they know it could be on the internet, and, and normally is, um, it's tough. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, 
You, you've, you've had a bit of hate coming your way too. I googled you the other day, and there's oh, a, you know? a couple of little groups who uh, <laughs> is he really a journalist? Uh, kind of, you know. Yeah, that's kind of a <laughs> yeah, yeah. good question. Um, yeah, often. I mean, in my reporting, it's often remarkable how willing people are to, you know, um, sort of boast of their role in violence. Wow. Um, uh. Which is something that surprised me, but then you realise that. You know, what we see as a horrible thing, they see as sort of, you know, uh, legitimate, morally just. Um, and so they're very happy to jump in front of the camera. Mm. Um, and they're not judged within their own community, no. I guess, so. No, no, not at all. Mm. Heroic within their own community. Um, but yeah, in terms of, you know, filming, I find it, you know, I don't work in television, um, but the the television journalists that I know on the whole are very good about sort of checking, um, making sure that people are, are you know anonymized if they need to be, mm -hmm. understanding the implications um, where their faces to be shown, um, and I think that's just you know you have to do that right. That's essential. If you're leaving the country, you know, it's very easy for you to fly out, go back to the safety of your own country. Um, but there are people who are going to be left behind, who are going to be imperiled by your work and by your own sort of um, lax attitude to security. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, yeah. imperative the journalists do factor that into their sort of planning for um, an assignment. Yeah, for sure. Have you had anything like that happen with? With uh, with the ABC, oh, look, uh, we yeah, I mean, I think uh, yes, yes and no. Um, certainly, there yeah, there've been times when and we've been concerned. I mean, uh, it was actually quite funny when I, when I was doing a lot of television stories, producing. We used to. It used to be such a bizarre process because if, you, if you're filming, you know, obviously there's always going to be much more kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, official Interest. kind of <laughs> response. You know, they're yeah. going to be knowing what you're doing and yeah. so on. And, and if you're flying in a crew from from Sydney, I even more so. So um, a lot of the stories I did, you know, there were people coming in from other places, so that the Chinese authorities had to know. And we were going to places um, to film stories that were quite sensitive, like when we first went to Xinjiang in the 1990s. This is far western China, the sort of Muslim, sort of Turkic region of China. Um, and so we had to kind of do this weird sort of dummy thing where during the day we'd have to follow a kind of officially approved um, sort of regimen of interviews and things. And then at night we would sneak out and do all the interviews with the people that, that we really wanted to talk to. And of course all of those ones we would anonymise, if that's, mm. yeah, that's a good word, um, and, and you know, film in sort of a way to sort of protect those people. Um, and it was sort of this sort of cat and mouse thing. So on the whole, um, you know, there aren't many times, you know, I can think, well, there was a particular moment where someone was put in particular danger. Um, the, the biggest dangers that actually in the end the ABC faced and in, those, in that 10-year period that I was working as a producer doing these stories in China was that the, um, the ABC would be expelled from China. You know, that was the real thing and I was always having to kind of like be, be aware of, you know, how do we manage that? Um, and then we had a system where, 
whatever happened, we must make sure protect the kind of the, the correspondent. And I was the producer. So if anything ever went wrong, I would take the blame. And the Chinese have this great system, um, the self-criticism, which is you can kind of sign a confession. You can say, oh, look, I'm really terribly sorry. I've you know, not respected the laws of China. You know, I will try and do better in the future kind of thing. You can write a kind of fulsome apology. And they like that. They think that's kind of quite good. And they can put it on a file. So I found that over the years I worked in China, I would feel, I've just had masses of these. I did masses of self-criticism, and they were really, you know, I got very sort of expert at them and managed to protect. But then finally, um, for Four Corners, we did a story. Um, Sally Neighbor and I did a story um, exposing or trying to expose um, the, the kind of crony sort of capitalism in China, the way that um, Deng Xiaoping's family, he was the the main leader, in the, as you know, in the 1980s and 90s. His family had really enriched themselves, um, and so we were doing this story about that, and that fine, you know, really got the, you know, <laughs> up the Chinese nose, and so I actually had to be flown, uh, flown down to Canberra with, um, with the kind of head of our um, news and current affairs to, to, you know, to be basically, you know, dressed down by the ambassador, and they said, well, we're going to expel, you know, ABC, this is just, uh, you know, terrible. Um, and How at that moment, that this was, uh, well, that's what's so great about it. At that moment, I thought, you know, all the preparation I've done, all these years of doing these self-criticisms, this is my chance, you know, like I've <laughs> found I've really honed my skills. And so there we were with this guy and, and I just, I have to say, it was kind of, I was like an out-of-body experience. <laughs> it was like almost operatic. Like all of my, the terminology I'd learnt over the years, you know, the quotes, you know, always has quotations, the quotations from Mao, quotations from Deng Xiaoping. We were seeking truth from facts. We were doing this, you know. <laughs> so we used all these kinds of things. And the ambassador was, I think, just so astounded. This foreigner, you know, kind of like, you know, saying all this stuff. That in the end, it was kind of like, well, you know, could you write all that down and sign it? And I said, oh, totally, you know. And he said, I want, you know, the senior person to sign it. So, you know, we went back to Sydney and, you know, we typed this thing up and, you know, the guy signed it and we sent it and it was fine. <laughs> but, yeah. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure the Chinese is that, would accept that now. But, um, yeah, yeah. I want to open <laughs> it up moment. now if anyone's got a question for either of our, our guests, for Francis or Madeline. Um, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll get to you with the roving mic. Uh, oh, here we go. Right one. Here. Use that one. Oh, Yeah. Thank you, both of you, Madeline and Francis. Nice to see you again, Francis. I'm interested to know how you found and recruited your fixer, especially yeah. in Western Myanmar. Yeah, well, he was... So I lived in northern Thailand for a while, um, working with these exiled Burmese journalists, and he was sort of in that community. Um, so I met him there, and then he moved back to um, his part of the country, Western Myanmar. Um, and so whenever I'd go over there, I'd work with him. Um, and it's, you know, surprisingly rare to find, uh, you know, I guess a moderate from within the Rakhine Buddhist community who's willing to help journalists um, report on this issue. Um, and so he, and he, you know, he's got a very nuanced, very deep personal understanding of the situation there. Um, so I was able to sort of draw on his knowledge, his skills, his sort of sensitivity, um, his, you know, knowledge of the lie of the land out there. Um, and it, yeah, it turned into quite an effective um, partnership. And I used him for the sort of, you know, how long would it have been? Sort of four years when I was reporting on that issue in depth. Every time I'd go out there, I'd work with him. Um, and he'd put me in touch with his colleagues and so on. 
Um, in other parts of the country, or in other countries um, that I've reported on around the region, it's, you know, it's just word of mouth. I'll speak to journalist friends who have worked there, um, get them to recommend a good fixer, um, or I'll talk to NGOs on the ground. Um, they can hopefully recommend someone. So it's a question of, you know, you have to go with trusted sources. Um, yeah. I think several people have tried to make these databases of good uh -huh. fixers. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I wouldn't touch them with a barge bomb. No. Um, always go through your friends. Yeah, yeah. I haven't got anything to add to that. I mean, when I was, yeah, when I was working in television, we also re relied on fixers, particularly if you're going to yeah, a place like Xinjiang. I keep referring to that. But uh, we need people with particular linguistic skills or cultural knowledge. And, it, yeah, it's usually coming through, yeah, word of mouth. Um, you talk to people who, you know, who know that academics can be very helpful actually mm. um, they've often got you know wonderful resources mm. and they can put you you know in touch with people and so on and then once you find a really good one um, you just go back to them again and again and yeah. again and uh, and it's it's really great sometimes with China having been involved with it for so long that you know there are people I work with as fixers in the 1990s who've gone on to be really you know kind of prominent journalists you know themselves and and that's really a kind of wonderful um, thing when you can see people develop their careers because it's, um, you know, what Francis is saying, you know, Fixer um, is the, they're, they're just such vital um, people. And I, I agree with you. I think that they should, um, as much as possible, get bylines as well. And I, I notice that some of the um, news organisations are doing that um, yeah. more and more. Um, when they can, they are doing that. Uh, and sometimes they're not doing it because for protecting the person. But, but as much as possible, they're saying, you know, additional reporting by or whatever, which is really good because they do do amazing work. Mm. Yeah. We've got a question over here, just while the microphone's coming over. Um, I actually found a, a great great tip for aspiring foreign correspondents out there for finding a fixer, and, and when you need one very, very quickly, and that is um, I've used uh, medical students in the past, <gasps> yeah. because they, they have to learn in English, and so wherever you go, you know, they, they have a reasonable understanding of English, and also when things go if things go bad, yeah. Yeah, they might have some <laughs> skills you can use. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, so it's, it's, it's bizarre, but, you know, over the years, that's been my go-to, and, and they normally know where the hospitals are, and, of course, that's a good source of stories. And, um, and a lot of them have gone on to be doctors, and, yeah. you, know, you know, I've got these wonderful friends who are doctors all around the world, and, uh, yeah, who spend a bit of time there as a That's a brilliant tip. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I remember yeah. that one. Uh, yes. Madeline, Madeline, do you think the youth of China collectively are ready for another Tiananmen Square? Uh, no. Um, no, I don't. Um, I think that... It depends <laughs> what you mean by that. Um, I, d I don't see the, the start of a kind of, a, a, that kind of sort of mass, mass movement amongst, amongst students. That being said, I mean, there are... There are issues that are really animating young people today, and I certainly do not see, you know, Chinese millennials, Chinese young people as being not engaged with, with big issues. And it has been interesting just in the last, last months, um, one thing that has been really developing in China is a Chinese version of the Me Too movement. Mm. Um, and the Chinese regime is really quite concerned about it and, and really trying to tamp it down because they, you know, it is an incredibly sexist society. And if, if that became a, a thing, you know, outing powerful people who had uh, um, mistreated young women, that could really become quite a, um, a political challenge. Um, and they've managed to kind of damp it down in almost every area except universities. Yes. And it's in the universities where it's really, um, it's, it's, they're just not being able to, to control it. Uh, 
and there have been a number of scandals that have been exposed by um, young female students, including going back into that kind of archive. There's, there's a couple of cases that have happened um, in China where, where students have been harassed and abused by their, um, by their um, teachers, professors, and have committed suicide. And there's a particular case at Beijing University where this happened about 10 years ago. And that's become this kind of, um, uh, kind of um, what's the word? You know, like it's, it's an issue that a lot of people are rallying around. Let's account for this particular issue. You know, what happened to that professor? And what we found is that, yes, he was indeed um, sent from Beijing University, but he's gone on to, to other, you know, he's been basically kicked upstairs to other uh, prestigious posts. So um, there's been a lot of attention paid to that. And the young students who've been involved in, in um, um, pursuing that issue have been very brave and they've also used techniques that I have not seen since Tiananmen like um, putting up big posters, um, setting out the arguments and so on, at, you know, on uh, billboards and so on at, at um, Beijing University. So there are these kind of moments where you see a kind of activism but in terms of like a mass thing, I, I don't... S because Tiananmen relied on a certain naivety, you know, people yes. didn't realise what, what could possibly happen. Um, and I think now people do know. And so the chances of a really mass thing like that, I think, are, are remote. But at the same time, I think, yeah, in, little, in small ways, um, young people are trying to make a difference in their own lives. And it could be quite interesting to watch that over time. Good. Thank you yeah. very much. Got another question? Just down the front here. Uh, this is slightly broader than just foreign uh, correspondence, but in terms of protecting people who are being interviewed on television, so often the, the, the face is blurred and the voice is blurred and they're wearing such a distinctive top <laughs> that everybody in the street will know who it is. So do you take care, and I, I probably less applies in Myanmar and China, but do you take care what the people are wearing so they make sure they can't be identified through their clothing? Um, well, the simple answer to that is I would say yes, uh, but you know sometimes things happen and the right amount of care hasn't been taken or hasn't happened to us. But I know of cases where they've blurred the wrong face, they've blurred <gasps> the interviewer rather than <laughs> the interviewee. <laughs> um, oh God! Yeah, I mean I think you know you you really do need to take that you know very seriously, particularly if it's a whistleblower or you know, of the, someone in a situation where they're going to be you know, harmed for what they're saying. And, and, you, and it's about trust, isn't it? You know, the trust you have with, with, your, uh, with your talent or with, with the person that you're speaking to and, and also with your audience. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, let's pop the microphone over there, sorry. Thank you. Um, Madeline, you haven't commented at all on the relationship of Hong Kong to the mainland, mm. and it seems that increasingly the rights of the special economic zone are being eroded, and the relationship is changing yeah. quite dramatically. Yeah, the situation in, in Hong Kong is really, um, uh, is really concerning, you know, because for a very long time there was a, you know, broadly a respect for that idea of that Deng Xiaoping, you know, came up with, you know, one country, two systems, and that Hong Kong was a much freer place. Um, but um, as, as China's economic power has grown, um, there's been two things that have happened. The first thing that started to happen in Hong Kong before there was any kind of overt uh, political pressure was that people economically um, in Hong Kong became more and more dependent on, on the mainland. And so 
um, media organisations, for example, who had been quite sort of freewheeling about terms of reporting they would do in Hong Kong, would become more and more concerned about, um, uh, you know, uh, advertising. You know, like that the, the advertising advertisers would be influenced um, by the Chinese mainland about what they should, you know, where they should advertise, and so on. So some of the kind of more progressive journalists, uh, journals went out of business because no one wanted to advertise there anymore. Because um, if they did, they would get some sort of blowback from um, from from China. Um, so that's sort of, we saw that happening over you know ten years or so. You start to see that sort of happening, a kind of self censorship. But then in more recent times, the, the Chinese government has is basically reneging on the deal. I mean, they're they're changing um, the situation uh, quite markedly in terms of what's you know what's possible in in the political space in Hong Kong. And you're probably aware of the the recent elections where they basically managed to um, a number of pro democracy candidates, young people, were elected to the to the Legislative Council, and yet um, subsequently they lost their they lost their positions. They found ways to to um, disqualify them, um, and that's really quite worrying. Uh, I think it's interesting because it, for a long time um, the the regime in China felt that they needed to treat Hong Kong well because it was kind of a model for Taiwan because they want Taiwan back more than anything. You know, they really want Taiwan to come back to the mainland. And they thought if we can make Hong Kong look like it really works, this idea of the sort of separate system within the system, that the Taiwanese will eventually... They've obviously given up on that idea now. They, they feel like they can never seduce Taiwan. And so they've decided not to bother with that kind of window dressing. That being said, Hong Kong is still a much more freewheeling place than, than, than China is. And the media is still a lot freer. And you, certainly when you arrive there, you do have this sense of like, you know, it's a bit more relaxed. But yeah, something to watch out, look, to continue to look at. I've got that like 30 seconds early, um, and I say that because it's written in bold and underlined that I need to finish on time. Um, and I hope that I've done your presence here justice, but it's been fantastic to have you both. Uh, can we have a big round of applause, please, for both Francis and Madeline? You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.